Hey, it's Luke. This week on the pod, our slightly belated second anniversary spectacular. Completely unintentionally, our first ever episode dropped on 420, 2020, meaning for the rest of time, we will be celebrating our anniversary on 420 or, or a couple days afterwards. We're recording this on the 22nd. It'll be out early. Uh, you'll, be, you'll be hearing this, and we promise you this, because as we'll learn in a second, there's a producer on this, a first-time producer on this episode. So for the anniversary, in the interest of putting together something a little special, but also maybe something a little easier than a normal episode... We asked you, dear readers and listeners, to send us voicemails and emails for a reader mailbag, something that's totally unique and has never been done in podcasting before, as far as I know. Don't at me with counterfactuals or the fact that every single podcast does this. Although we might not have been right about the easier thing because of some of your questions were uh, pretty tough. But here we are, the phone number experiment. We created a phone number and asked people to contribute voicemails was a success. Like we had our first voicemail within like five minutes of sending out the email, which is actually awesome. Thank you guys so much. A few of you sent some really sweet messages. They were actually more sort of like good jobs than questions, which also is not helping this episode. So thank you, but also do better. The messages might've been sweeter than we actually deserve. And some of the questions were so good. They were like too complex for a reader mailbag, but we're still going to try. We were expecting questions like, has there been an update on the Matt Shane Poland saga to which we could have said, yeah, we've actually heard he's back in Spokane now. Like that's a reader mailbag question. Some of the questions we got were like, if God created the universe, who created God and magnets, how do they work? Questions that literally cannot be answered. God is the great unknown, the great unknowable, the opiate of the masses, depending on who you talk to. And magnets are just magic. Literally, physics has no idea how magnets work, and neither does Insane Clown Posse. We are going to do our best to answer big local questions, such as the email that had nothing in the body and just the subject line, will our housing market always be crazy? Question mark, exclamation point. And as I've been sort of hinting at for months now, we've been working hard behind the scenes to make this whole thing more sustainable and capable of delivering more delicious content in a more timely manner. So we're going to talk about that a little bit too, where, where we're at as an organization and where range is headed. So stay tuned for that. All that and more coming up right after this from a, no, well, not a listener, but a reader, an emphatic non-listener, but emphatic reader named Gavin. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record your message. Hey, y'all. My name is Gavin, and uh, I moved away from Spokane a decade ago. But I think this is one of the best projects going in terms of keeping people who care about Spokane informed, not to mention people who care about other things. Um, I work in radio, so I actually don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> I will never hear your podcast. I just don't have bandwidth to listen to more stuff. I get paid to uh, work during NPR Morning Edition every day and produce news. And so I'm just calling to say... Keep up the amazing work, and anything you write and email me, I will read it. <laughs> Ten years out from Spokane, not a podcast fan, still a huge fan of what you guys do. Keep up the good work. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Hey, it's Luke. Hey, it's Luke. Hey, it's Luke. 
Did I get that right? Uh, I think we can fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> in all seriousness, this is Val, Range's audience and membership editor, and a fellow troublemaker with Luke. Um, I'm the one who sends out the emails to you and who will generally try to make sure that Range is a helpful and accessible resource for our community. Yeah, we feel super fortunate to have Val. So audience editor is a role we absolutely need and want. And I kind of feel like any community focused news outlet really needs. Realistically, we thought it would be a year or two before we'd be able to hire that position. But late last year, we got a grant from Lion Publishers, an industry group that supports local online news outlets like us. They've been a big supporter for us since the beginning, to be honest, to fund this role for two years. The grant is in full disclosure funded by Facebook. I will not call it Meta. Um, but Facebook has not had any hand in any sort of stuff. We, we're doing a fellowship program through Lion that's sort of funded by Facebook, but run by some of the most forward-thinking journalists that I've ever worked with. It's it's a really cool thing. So welcome to Val Osher. Been here for exa- almost exactly three months. So our two-year anniversary was almost your three-month anniversary within a couple of days. So with that all said, introductions made. Should we get started? Okay, so we first wanted to thank Gavin for kicking off our reader messages, even if he won't hear it. Thanks, Gavin. <laughs> and we also wanted to thank all of you who left us voicemails and emails to mark our second anniversary. Um, they all made us feel really good to hear from y'all and uh, get all of those messages. We'll try to get as many of them as we can in this episode, but please know that some of the bigger ones will need to be whole ass articles or podcasts on their own, which isn't a bad thing. So now we have a list of stuff to tackle. So Luke, let's start with a question we definitely can't solve in an episode, but we had a ton of interest in and which is climate change. And so we had a few questions about the environment, climate change in Spokane and wildfires. So let's play one and get into it. Hi, my name is Jamie and congratulations range on year two. One, um, two, my question and issue is about climate change in relation to Spokane. Um, even before COVID, we were having really, really horrible um, high heat temperatures and extreme fires around our city, which makes it with the air quality going up for almost 500 plus And for those of us that are outdoor enthusiasts, people who like to go camping, people who like to travel here, I definitely feel like it's affecting our city and our morale. Um, Not only are we inside all through the winter, then we have to stay in through the spring and uh, late summer until fall. Um, And what what are we going to do about it? You know, what what are we willing to do? Are we willing to walk, ride, and bike? Um, are we willing to let go of our cars? Are we willing to help um, with the land council and the river keepers to keep our city as beautiful and wonderful as it always has been? Um, one of our early taglines was near nature, near perfect, but not if the air quality is at 500. Travelers aren't going to come here. We're not going to get tourists if it's too hot and it's, if you can't breathe. Um, and it's been getting worse every year. So um, I know it's affected me. I know it's affected my business. I know it's affected my life here in Spokane outside of COVID. Um, So what are we going to do about it? Thank you to Jamie for that question and your sweet words. Um, We also had a Melinda ask about uh, wildfire prevention 
in an email. So I'm from Southern California, so I'm pretty used to wildfire seasons and bad air, but I'm also from the desert and that's part of life there. And I just can't really imagine what it would be like to see this happening more and more in a really green place like Spokane. So first, Luke, can you give us a quick overview of how this region has been seeing the effects of climate change in recent years and then like how you've seen it change through your life in Spokane? Well, first of all, it's funny to hear somebody talk about Spokane as green in comparison to where they're from, because mostly we're like used to people <laughs> from Seattle being like, y'all live in a desert, which we, you know, we kind of do. I mean, like the reality of our area, let's go back into prehistory for a moment or, you know, recorded history. Like this is a steppe climate. It's relatively arid. The sort of native ecosystem around here was literally built on fires. The fire is a natural part of the ecology of this area to the extent that like tribes would, you know, local indigenous tribes would do controlled burns and ceremonial burns as a way of sort of cultivating the wild flora that they used to survive, like camas bulbs and stuff like that. So like fire has always been a part of this area, but actually for any of that, it was actually forest fire prevention efforts, some of which were pioneered around here. And certainly in, in response to the big burn that happened, I think it was in like in the teens, this massive fire that swept through uh, Western Montana and was just like the most devastating fire in American history at that time. And it led to all of these sort of conservation efforts to prevent any fires from ever happening. Uh, and that's been sort of like wildfire management policy for all of America for a really long time, which causes unintended consequences like the pine trees around here are meant to burn they're like literally adapted to survive fire isn't that how like the cones open up and that and also like why the bark is as thick as it is and the you know the branches start up really high so that when there is a fire it doesn't get to the branches but when you have all of these they're called dog hair thickets the first story i ever wrote was about wildfire at turnbull so i'm drawing on like 17 year old information here sorry not sorry but like when you see like walking around forests, all these tiny little pine trees that are only like five or six feet tall that are kind of choked out and like scrubby looking, those are ecologically in a, in a state of nature supposed to like burn away and die. And only, you know, there's only supposed to be like 20 pine trees per acre, the way the, the ecology around here is set up. So the fact that we prevented forest fires for the longest time was actually contributed to the severity of the forest fires historically. Now we're like on year three of one of the most severe droughts we've ever been a part of. And so to your point, Val, like my, my house almost burned out in the country during firestorm in 91. And yet we always felt like the fires suck here, but at least it's not California. <laughs> <laughs> and now it feels like California's 10 times worse than it used to be. And we're, we're as bad as California used to be. And so that's a massive, massive problem. It looks like we're going to have a more drought again this year, looking at the, the sort of for, the long range forecast. And so I don't know if like there's a good answer for Jamie, even if whatever, you know, efforts we take locally and even super regionally, like a lot of the smoke is coming from British Columbia. It's coming from these high forested areas in the Canadian Cascades and central Washington, the, high, the Okanagan Highlands, none of which we have direct control over here, but also like this is like a local manifestation of a global phenomenon. And really that could create, 
you know, solidarity among people who are worried about climate in Bangladesh or the Marshall Islands or people who are worried about their homes, you know, completely disappearing because of rising sea levels. We could be in solidarity with those folks as we're worried about three months of fire season choking out our ability to even survive in this place we love. But it's going to take a global effort. So there's like the hope, no hope sides of that to me anyways. So you talked about we're expected to have another drought or another really bad drought year. Can we expect another extreme weather summer this year? I mean, I kind of I kind of feel like we have to plan for it almost. That's just kind of like who I am as a person, though, like just sort of assume the worst. And then it's like, oh, it wasn't it was only two months this year. That's not bad. It's it doesn't seem like the droughts as severe as it was last year. And it's all. It all depends on, you know, lightning strikes or people throwing cigarette butts out windows. You know, like there's there's a million factors that are that contribute to weather, like how bad the fire season is. But it doesn't seem like the drought is as bad as it was. It also doesn't seem like we got the snowpack that we usually expect. So I have nothing to compare it to. I wasn't here last year. So <laughs> I'm like, this is way more snow and rain than I'm used to. <laughs> yeah, Man, We've had a crazy wet winter. <laughs> winter. <laughs> and then so Alyssa Ball wrote last year about agriculture and like the effects of climate change on agriculture in central Washington in her story, Agtastrophe. Yeah. Do you know if there's like anything like as a follow up to that, I guess, um, do you know if there's anything that Washington farmers are doing like different this year to to avoid those kinds of losses? Not that I've heard of. So there's like irrigated and unirrigated farmland around here. Stuff like wheat is generally unirrigated. So stuff south of us like Palouse is tends to be unirrigated. Stuff that's sort of more central Washington. There's a lot of irrigated farmland. Stuff like the apples, grapes, all of our the fruit trees. There's that's irrigated land. People are taking small efforts in the like the grains and cereal crops to do to basically, you know, actually our friends at the Grain Shed and Link Foods have been working with farmers to sort of bring back heritage grains that are drought tolerant and um, pest tolerant. So they're kind of like naturally organic. And also they were they're hybridized a hundred plus years ago when people didn't have modern technology to like just survive better in our climate than like commercial commodity grain does, but that's still a really, really small project and not the majority of wheat grown around here by any means. So, Mm -hmm. but that is a a concrete step, but that's a step that people have been taking for 10 years. That's not like a, a, a response to what happened last year. The bigger problem is all of those irrigated croplands in, especially like in the Okanagan Highlands and stuff, like we're seeing a lot of aquifer subsidence in the sort of central Washington aquifer is like the irrigation that was done in the thirties is sort of sinking the land the way that you see a lot in California. So that's, I don't, I don't know if anybody has a solution to that yet, but it's definitely like a problem for our, you know, obviously for our economy, for our environment. And, you know, we're along with like places like California, along with Ukraine, we're one of the bread baskets of the world. We were just for a future episode we're working on, we were just on a call yesterday with a dude who studies sort of the economic development around both international trade and the military industrial complex in the Pacific Northwest and how those two things sort of led to the the growth, like the economy we know today. And, you know, our apples go all over Asia, our wheat goes to China, to all over Asia as well. So although it doesn't always feel like it, we're part of it, like a global supply chain. 
And there are a lot, a lot of people that depend on our agriculture, not just in the Northwest, not just in America. Yeah. So we had another question from Melinda and I think you can answer it pretty well. Um, they were asking about the many uh, religious billboards around Spokane in Eastern Washington, particularly anti-choice and Christian ones. And they said something interesting. They said that the Pacific Northwest isn't known for this activity. So where is it coming from? Is it local groups? Has it increased in recent years? Are religious groups other than Christians supporting anti-choice advertising? So let's start with this question. Is it local, Luke? I think the thing that's interesting is like the Northwest in general is considered an unchurched area, like relatively unchurched, like compared to the South and other parts of America. I grew up in an evangelical community in North Spokane County, and I feel like most of the people I've known my entire life, not just back then, were people of faith to some degree. So like there's like a weird disconnect there with that. I feel like lots of people are people of faith around here. As for like the source of these billboards, it's interesting because it's often actually the way that the billboard advertising works. It's not like it's tied to an election cycle or a super PAC or whatever. So you don't have to do the sort of political reporting with a lot of those billboards that you do with you know campaign speech. But also there's a lot of pol- just like specific billboard business policy terrain, the arts organization that you might have seen the COVID billboards around town. That's also not campaign speech, but because the billboard manufacturer was worried about blowback or the the billboard company was worried about blowback, they made terrain say that it was them funding it. (laughs) So part of this is law, part of it is policy. And I think Mm -hmm. that if we wanted to get to a point where we wanted to know who was making that sort of political speech, it would probably take activism to go to like Lamar and the other billboard companies and be like, why are you not telling us who's putting this political speech on these billboards? And you could, we could probably, people could probably pressure them that way. For right now, it's it's kind of hard to tell. I would not assume there might be outside money because there's outside money comes from a lot of different places these days. But it also wouldn't surprise me if they were local groups. Have you noticed an increase or a decrease or like a- any changes in this frequency of billboards that are you know hyper religious or um, you know doing like anti-choice advertising, things like that. I feel like it comes in waves. I don't know if I can say if it's like gotten a lot worse or a lot more recently. It may, it might be more visible. Maybe there's like more funding as a tactic. They might be, people might be using that as a tactic as opposed to other things, but I'm not really, really sure to be honest. I mean, even in California, you know, what's super liberal state or whatever, you know, there's those billboards too. They pop up, but I feel like there's so many more billboards that they don't stand out as much. <laughs> so it's uh, right. It's like uh, one out of a thousand. And then here it's, you know, maybe one out of 10. You think it's that many or you think it's more I don't like, know. Yeah. I mean, here the billboards, I feel like the billboards that I notice are the ones that are like anti-choice or they're for sex shops or, and those are the two yeah, that the, I see. There are, like, there, are, <laughs> there are two wolves inside of yeah. us, inside of Spokane. <laughs> anti-choice ads and uh sex shops castle (laughs) megastore ads yeah and so out of curiosity are there many other like super influential groups you know religious or otherwise here other than christians that could bankroll that much anti-choice advertising or is that you know it's hard to say but and i'm not like a political scientist but um Anti-choice messaging actually is seems pretty frequently bankrolled by non-religious people as a way of bringing social conservatives and Christians into coalition with other interests. Like 
that was sort of the moral majority thing that happened in the 80s was this partnership between social conservatives and fiscal conservatives that created, you know, like gave rise to Reagan and kind of basically created the Republican Party that I've been living with my entire life and you have too. And I think the far right isn't like increasingly trying to cobble together a big tent as a way of solidifying power. So like when we were having the reopen protests in Spokane, you saw this nationally too, but it was always this big, weird coalition of like the business leaders would be at the forefront. So it was like people being like, you got to reopen our businesses. We're going to lose our CDU dealerships. But it was like, these were put on by Matt Shea, who's a longtime anti-choice advocate, along with all of the other things he does. And the Proud Boys were there and the Boogaloo was there and the militia movements were there and they were there alongside social conservatives. And the messages were sort of along a big sort of spectrum that like social conservative talking points were very much a part of anti-choice stuff, but also anti-LGBT, anti-trans. And when we talked to Leah Satilli, we definitely saw this in Spokane and she was sort of seeing it in her reporting regionally. These were almost like conventions or like fairs where people would like set up their booths. It'd be a reopen protest, but there would be anti-choice advocates tabling and all these, you know, it became sort of like a swap meet of ideology that also like really included everything from concern trolling about kids and masks in schools to like Pizzagate QAnon stuff. Again, like I haven't followed it this closely, but now that we're talking about grooming and pedophiles and Disney like it all feels like part of a spectrum or part of a continuum rather that's really ramped up a lot. So I think it's quite possible that funding for that, these sorts of billboards could come from any one of those groups. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, there's a lot of people who are Republicans or conservatives solely because of their pro-life beliefs, you know, and, and solely because they are against abortion, and like, but they don't agree with anything else. Well, and that's <laughs> and then the they way kind of get sucked in. Well, and that's the way kind the of political, thing. that's the way political coalition building works. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, I'll care about your issue if you care about mine, but I definitely don't want to make it seem like all religious people around here are conservatives. And this is like a really, really key thing to me. Like, there are a lot of progressive believers and faith leaders who've been doing social justice work for decades and are building and have built com coalitions with communities of color and other activists. So Many of the people I consider peers and mentors in the community building work I've done have been part of millennial hipster Christian culture who live their faith by giving a whole lot of time and energy to fighting for justice and just generally like building community in Spokane. Spokane's like statistically an underchurched area the way that the whole Northwest is, but that has never really told the, the whole story for me. And there are a lot of people who live their faith outside of the pews. And it never surprises me when I find out someone comes to their activism, whether conservative or progressive, from a place of faith. A, a really good episode, if you wanted to dive back into it, it was the episode we did with Chris Bovey and Bryce Noose. It was a fascinating example of like a conversion story. Both of them were from very conservative evangelical backgrounds and kind of through the process of COVID, through the process of sort of witnessing what happened with the murder of George Floyd. And then they also like went and took a trip to CHOP to see what was going on over there. They went from, you know, really conservative dudes to being pretty radical advocates for the poor and for other excluded communities. And they did that through an evolution of their faith, not breaking from it. Hmm. So they both still, I, I think at least last time I checked in with them, they both consider themselves to be evangelicals and they're trying to sort of figure out how to live a social justice, evangelical life. And, and I find that stuff really fascinating too. Yeah. There's a huge community TikTok and that are deconstructing Christians who are, especially since COVID trying to figure out their faiths. So it's really 
I think it's a pretty common thing right now. Now we're going to go into our third question, which is actually a story that I want to look into. Hey, Range Team. Um, Just wanted to say that um, a lot of, I've talked to a lot of different journalists in this town who are saying really nice things about you guys behind your back. And I hope some of them are saying it to your face too. Um, Not that you're sitting around waiting for that approval, but a huge fan of what you guys do. Um, Something that might be interesting to do a deep dive, and I'm sure you guys are probably already thinking about it, is uh, those county commission receipts. Uh, I think that a lot of people in Spokane don't realize how much county commissioner decisions uh, play into our day-to-day life. All right. Bye. The only thing people say to me in front of my back are uh, very offensive. So uh, I'm glad to hear they're saying nice things behind our back. What? I've only ever heard nice things, but maybe because I'm new. <laughs> so that was really nice. And uh, we also got an email asking for basically more awareness on how county commissioners affect our lives. It's my understanding we have five seats up for election this November. Yeah, this is like, to me, probably the, the biggest note of power that is the least well understood. And I include myself in that. We spend so much time talking about the city council and obviously those of us that live in Spokane. There's a reason for that. That's a, obviously a huge sort of power note in our lives, but the county commissioners are massively influential. And whenever they come into conflict with policies at the city level, it's not like they supersede them, but like stuff with our urban growth boundary, like basically deciding how sprawly our city or our urban areas get. There's There are state laws that sort of restrict that stuff, but then there are also loopholes in those state laws that are often, the dynamic is that county power And then we're not talking about necessarily like direct, like, you know, the commissioners directly voting to like put illegal um, subdevelopments places, but it's more like the rank and file sort of permitting systems and stuff that can allow this sometimes. And I think some of these loopholes are being closed, but like there is this like give and take with things like um, urban growth boundary and the commissioners and even just things like there used to be zoning for like 30 acre minimum parcels in the county. So it's like you kind of had to have either a bunch of land or it was just like a farm. And that's gotten partially it's ideological, partially it's growth ideology. Like how do we want to grow? Where do we want to grow? Partially it's a tax thing. Like the county, you know, sort of subsists on taxes the way that every municipality does. And so sometimes it's just like we need to get more money in. Let's create more subdevelopments to create more tax revenue. But then outside of like growth stuff, something we've written about at length and that has been we've just come off of two years where this was maybe the single most important thing in any of our lives was the public health response is almost completely in the control of the county commissioners. The way our state public health law is written County commissioners have like total control over the public health board and therefore over public health policy. And also then regional law enforcement, the jails under their purview, Sheriff Ozzie's seemingly never ending attempt to build a new jail. He had a partner in Al French, who's a county commissioner who also wants the new jail. Well, isn't Ozzie also running for commissioner seat? No, that was the rumor. He says he's not. He's actually saying that he's not running for re-election as sheriff. He's picked a successor. And he says he's moving back to Wyoming, which is where he's from. But we'll I'll believe that when I see it. But yeah, like so, you know, we think so much about, you know, what is our criminal legal system doing here? Obviously, the county prosecutor is the county seat position. The jail is a county-wide thing. The commissioners touch all of those things and probably a million more things. So actually, I think like as range grows, we need to put a focus on county commission stuff 
But to your point, we've historically had three county commissioners, three people for over 500,000 people is not an amazing representation. Structurally, the primaries would be broken up by district, but the general election was countywide. So it was like functionally impossible mm-hmm. because of the demographic tilt of the county to elect progressive people. Like there hadn't been a Democrat elected as county commissioner in years. Bonnie Mager, I think. And that was, I think, over a decade ago. Before that, John Ross Kelly, the famous alpinist and uh, rock you know, climber, had previously been, I think, in the 90s. He recently ran... And it wasn't like the most heartfelt campaign. So I don't I, like I don't know if it's it feels to me less a symbol of a demographic shift in the county than maybe just the way the campaigns were run. But like Ross Kelly had been a commissioner in the past and then ran again recently and lost pretty badly. It feels like that was more about the campaign itself. So the state law for the first time this year, like coming up in a couple months, we're going to be voting on five county commissioners instead of three. And then also importantly, that sort of they've cut out the countywide general election. So we're going to be voting in our respective districts the way the city council does for the whole thing. So the districts will be voting on their own representation rather than going to a countywide. So that and that feels like a win for representation. It's like the problem with our national Senate is that, you know, you get two people representing entire states and how well do those people represent any individual community within those states? And that's not really the point of the Senate, but that's kind of the dynamic we had at the county level. So both people who are more progressive minded for reasons of finally being able to have a political voice at the county, but also anybody who just like, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, if you care about representative government, this is like an objectively fair way to do things. We'll see where where we get and we'll see if it also leads to more greater transparency because one of the things that people would always complain about with the commissioners, and this is sort of like gossipy, but like I would always hear from like whenever there was a tough vote that was like maybe not going to be super popular and people would show up to meetings to sort of oppose it. Mm-hmm they would just postpone the vote until there was a meeting where fewer people showed up. Oh, wow. And again, this is like, you know, insider activist drama. But the hope is that with more people representing a more diverse swath of Spokane, it'll be harder to do that sort of anti-transparency stuff that a more homogenous commission seemed to do. We are also planning on doing more of an explainer about this, um, about, you know, county commissioners and what their role is in our governance as part of an ongoing series called tentatively called range of questions. So that's just a little sneak peek at that. One of the things Val and I have been spending a lot of time thinking about is what do people need to know beyond like the weekly news cycle to like understand how things work around here so that they can advocate for whatever they care about and so I think range of questions is going to be one thing where we try to do this, like answer specific questions that people have in, in detail to sort of help people understand the area better. But then also maybe something like kind of like encyclopedia of institutions mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. like, hey, this is what the county commission does. And it's sort of evergreen and mm-hmm. it's not, you know, tied to a new cycle or tied to a new story. There's all this stuff with the new shelter. There's all this drama around the new shelter. I literally learned about a board called the Continuum of Care Board that I didn't even know about. I had literally never heard about. It's a board that deals with housing issues. I, I didn't even know it existed. And so I'm sure there's a lot more of those things sort of, you know, beneath the surface and not even beneath the surface. So these are public commissions. Like that is a public board 
made up of volunteers that meets in public. So it's not like they're, this is not like they're hiding. It's just, there's so much of that sort of cooperative, you know, bureaucracy that it's hard to keep track of. So that's what we're, we're trying to figure out how to sort of create that like institutional encyclopedia of Spokane. Stay tuned. Okay. So, and briefly um, on the question that we mentioned at the very beginning, will the housing market ever slow down? Will housing prices ever be reasonable again? What do you have on that, Luke? This is just my total opinion. I don't think so (laughs) for a while. Like there are concerns nationally of a market correction, especially with rising interest rates. That doesn't necessarily touch the rental market and it may actually make the rental market tighter because if people can't find houses to buy or they don't really want to, you know, lock in at a higher interest rate, they might choose to rent, which is going to further put a strain on the rental stock. So if you're if you're renting by choice, that means that people who have no choice but to rent are probably going to get pushed out of the system. There's this economic indicator where if your region is if it's cheaper to buy a house than it is to rent, that's like one thing. And if it's cheaper to rent than buy a house. That's a sign of like kind of an overheated or, or and it's not even overheated because like there are plenty of markets where it's cheaper to rent. Like you can, you come from a market where it's been cheaper to rent probably for a really long time yeah. in Southern California. So it's not uncommon, but for the first time it's actually true of Spokane. So like when I bought my house way back in 2009, my mortgage was cheaper than my rent. <laughs> that's less and less the case which means that more and more people might be pushed into an already extremely taxed rental market because it's just the cheaper of two options. And so that's super scary and interest rates going up won't help that. It'll probably hurt it. (laughs) And like just in general, and we talked about this with Ben Stuckert. We talked about this with Terry Anderson, Terry from the tenants union, Ben from the Spokane low income housing consortium. Local demand around here is just so much greater than the available supply that even if there is like a national crash, I don't think we're going to get like a crash in Spokane. I guess there might be some sort of correction, but I don't, I don't even know if that'll happen. And even 2009, we got hit here, but we didn't get hit as hard as other places. And partially because there wasn't that overheated growth that you saw in like the Central Valley of California. Like my dad's from Stockton. Stockton was one of the two cities that went bankrupt because of how many foreclosures there were in that city. Detroit went bankrupt. We didn't see that in 09. I, I think it's we're going to see even less of it if it happens nationally in Spokane just because of, of how many people are trying to buy here. And then, and this is the dark, oh shit, dude, this is just the darkest answer. I'm sorry, but Gene Brake, who was on the pod to talk about realtor stuff, and he's a realtor who focuses on the Emerson Garfield neighborhood. Again, a historically sort of working class to low income neighborhood with the incredibly beautiful Corbin Park in the middle of it. So not, you know, a mix of high end, but mostly it's a neighborhood that's been historically for working class folks. Just emailed me the other day to say a house on Corbin Park had sold to a private equity firm. (laughs) So if they weren't already here, corporate investors have entered the chat and that does nothing but bad things for normal people trying to maintain their housing here. What were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, and I will share anecdotally. Um, me and my husband have been trying to buy a house in Spokane. We put in an offer on this house in technically in Spokane Valley, but it's just right on the the border of Spokane and Spokane Valley. And it was listed at like 290 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, we put in an offer. And then last minute, somebody came in with a $50,000 over asking offer on this house that smelled like cat pee. 
Um, <laughs> it was like a two bedroom, uh, but it was 50,000 over asking and they waived the inspection and we were just like, okay, you can have the cappy house. It's fine. And that's another thing that's like really, really dangerous Yeah, is that this market's so overheated that people mm-hmm. are doing things like waiving contingencies, waiving yeah. inspections. And that's, that might be because these people are just going to, it was a, on paper, a 1400 square foot house, but 700 of that was the basement. So really you were, you, you were going to pay 300. Oh my God. This is where I'm, where I feel old every day is just when I decide to look at the housing market because 700 square feet, $300,000, no shade on the Valley, but it's in, it was like on sixth in the Valley. Like that's not a historically. It had a nice lot. It had a nice lot. So what I'm, what I'm thinking is that whoever bought that might just be scraping it to buy, build something bigger. Maybe they're going to build apartments or something, Mm -hmm. which, you know, mixed bag, but for normal people trying to buy their first house. Yeah. When you were saying, you know, like the fixer uppers are getting bought by flippers, the houses that are really nice are super expensive. Right. So for just normal people trying to buy, it's brutal. And it's like, even if we were crazy enough to want to waive an inspection, like our, our mortgage lender literally won't let us do that. Like we can't, you can only waive an inspection if you have like all cash or some, I don't know, like a really good down payment or something. Right. (laughs) <laughs> people that have access to capital yeah. were already privileged in the system and now they're even more privileged. Right. So yeah. So no good news. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone around here, although they're sympathetic to other solutions, most people seem to agree that we've got to do market-based stuff because we only do market-based housing solutions in America because we don't do housing projects because people have heard about Cabrini Green and they've seen the movie, uh, was it Sandman? Candyman. They've seen Candyman. They're like, oh no, we don't want that in our town. But I, I don't, I honestly, we aren't building enough units to satisfy I'm intensely skeptical that only market solutions are going to be enough to reach the very bottom of the market where people are suffering the most, where people are not being like, oh, I've got to move out of my nice apartment into a crappier apartment. And they're saying, I'm, this apartment is the only thing I can afford. I'm going to go sleep in my car now. I'm going to be yet another you know, family or just single person or whatever who's maybe living in Camp Hope or trying to find shelter space or trying, you know, like these people are getting pushed out of the market into homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I don't see anything we're doing on the market side to alleviate that because we aren't currently building enough housing units to even satisfy the people who are moving here. There's a trickle down model of housing that's like trickle down economics that's like builders want to profit as much as possible when they're building new stuff. That's just capitalism. So they're building in the mid range, the upper mid range, the high range. And the thought is housing stock trickles down. So I I buy my first house. I work for a while. I decide to upgrade my house. I go into a bigger house. Maybe it's a new build. I pay twice as much for it as I did my old house. My old house goes to somebody who's starting their homeownership journey or whatever. And as we add stock at the top end, the middle and bottom trickles down to the folks who need it. But we've got all these people moving to our town. So they're snapping up everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we've uh, joining us today as an example of the problem, Val Osier. (laughs) But bringing that California money with me. (laughs) That's true. But you are actually bringing like California expectations of what it costs to have housing, which is like a lot higher. Like you were telling me what you paid for rent, and I was like, oh my god. Hey, I had really cheap rent. 
in California. Comparatively. Compa- <laughs> yeah, right. Comparatively. So, and that's, that's part of the problem, right? So like, I, I'm just like super skeptical. And again, this is just me editorializing. These are my personal feelings. Even if a relatively high percentage of these new complexes or neighborhoods have like affordable housing incentives built in, like housing subsidies, like, you know, when you do a, like a, some percentage of affordable you get like federal money and then some percentage of your housing units have to be at a certain rate. But if we aren't building enough total units, there's no way we're building enough affordable units as a percentage of those units. So I just like really think we need to start talking about public housing, but so far no one is seriously talking about public housing. And yeah, we got some, (laughs) let's move on. (laughs) Let's move on to the plans maybe because like that's, that would be a downer way to end. Way to take it down a notch, Luke. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) So uh, tell us, Luke, look into your crystal ball. Um, What is in store for the future of range? Well, you have been a heck of an addition through the fellowship. We're really, really happy to have you. And that's actually really spurred. One of the reasons the podcasts haven't been coming so hot and heavy lately is we just need to find funding to, to build our newsroom. And we've been working really, really hard on, you know, the goal, as we've always said, is to have a membership funded as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Like we want it to be funded by the people who are listening to this right now, because we want that to shape like community response to us, things that actually care to the people who are listening to this, or in the case of Gavin, people who will never listen to this, but will read us. Love you, Um, Gavin. Love you, Gavin. (laughs) Um, Just the honesty. I just really appreciate those people. Like that's who I, we want to be beholden to not some advertiser or not even, not even honestly some like family foundation or some like single large donor who might give us a bunch of money and then be angry if we tweak their nose. That doesn't mean we can get there on day one. So we've been like writing a bunch of grants. We're going like, we're looking basically at like every single funding layer possible And I think the good news is we're close. We've already got the approval. We're just waiting on a piece of funding that's going to allow us to hire a full-time writer slash editor. We think there's like a minimum viable team Mm -hmm. of like four people, the two of us and two other folks. And those two other folks will be focused more on editorial than I'm able to focus all my time on. I'm going to, but also with that additional help, I'm hoping to focus more of my time on editorial. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) Val's just been like the Swiss army knife doing everything that I don't have time to do or helping, you know, we're working on this together nonstop for three months, a lot of which is actually not the technical like job <laughs> title that you have. And so the hope is once we have more help, we'll be able to do the audience building stuff in with more intensity so that we can get to that sort of level of sustainability with the membership stuff um, as quickly as possible and just bring more people in. The, the other nice thing about the membership model is that like it incentivizes spreading the word as much as possible, mm-hmm. getting as many people to read as possible or listen as possible. And then uh, some fraction of those people is going to be like, hey, I like those guys. I'm going to give them money. And But it's only ever like 10 bucks a month. So no one person's going to be like, I need you to turn this into a um, Steve Bannon appreciation podcast or I'm going to take my funding away. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the hope is that over time and and as quickly as possible, we can get to a point where the majority of our funding comes from members so that we can spend as much of our time thinking about the news needs of like normal people. And I'm really, really excited about that, but it's, it's a hoof, man. It's a hike. (laughs) So let's kind of talk about how we're structured. Range is part of the Spokane Workers Cooperative, which you helped start. And so can you share with our listeners um, what that is and, and how 
this works into the overall vision of range. Yeah. So actually, if you guys remember back to the co-op episode we did with Joel Williamson of Link Foods and Grain Shed, the Spokane Workers Co-op is something that Joel and I started kind of after that episode when learning about co-ops just felt so like right to me, like mm-hmm. the thing that I had been looking for my whole life in a <laughs> sense. So you know, I've talked about this. It sucks when you're an employee and you've got a boss. It also kind of sucks to be a boss if you care about people. So the, the, the worker co-op idea is just two things. First and foremost, it's like, like making the workplace democratic and giving people an equal share and ownership of the work they actually do. So Val, again, as of five days ago is a worker owner of range and the larger co-op because the way it's structured is that we all own the whole thing in equal measure. It also helps sort of distribute responsibility such that, and not all co-ops do this, but we really want to sort of create a distributed leadership model where people have autonomy over the stuff they're good at. They do the work that they're good at and we all sort of collaborate on solving problems and just sort of making the ship run. So it's kind of the opposite of a hierarchical structure. We're trying to flatten the structure out as much as possible. I think the thing that I want to drive home, because Range is a worker-owned co-op or part of a worker-owned co-op, we're not owned by like a millionaire somewhere, you know, like like <laughs> the LA Times is owned by a billionaire and Washington Post is owned by a billionaire. Yeah. Like we're not owned by a super rich person and we're not owned by an evil hedge fund like my old uh, newspaper. (laughs) Right. So we're not beholden to, you know, shareholders or, you know, people who are just trying to suck money out of local news. Um, We're not owned by a single family. Um, We're not, you know, we're not owned by the Koch brothers or whatever, you know, (laughs) like. And I, I think that that's really important to share because that's not something that's common in news today. Um, you know, even my, my last news outlet, um, Long Beach Post was owned by the local millionaire and, you know, that, that came with its own problems and perceptions and things like that. So we're owned by the people. Bokan, I'll always say this is a really weird, interesting, unique place. We do things like really well, or we're insulated from national trends in a way that other places aren't. Like, I, I feel really lucky that Spokane has a good media ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We still have family owned papers, which I That's like, shocking. I'm going to say this <laughs> as critical as I've been of <laughs> the spokesman and, and other organizations. Like, it's probably better that our local, our local oligarchs own media than like national oligarchs. Yeah. Although it's a mixed bag, right? It's like when it's the, when it's a national hedge fund, they're probably just going to, if your profit isn't good, they're going to cut half the staff. Or so that's bad. Or even if your profit is good, they'll cut half right. your staff. Right. So if, you're, if your profit <laughs> is fine, but doesn't like hit projections, they'll cut your staff. And then if you're, you're owned by a local family, then there's all of those. And there's, these are families of deep wealth and deep connections. Like then there's all these other conflicts of interest that happen, which usually don't trickle down to the newsroom, but mm-hmm. they still can put pressure on the newsroom. Like there was a ton of criticism and would, let's just go way back into history because I don't want to dredge up new fights, but like when the Coles family funded the River Park Square parking garage and then the spokesman had to report on the debacle that that was, mm-hmm. like that was, and I actually think through no fault of the editors or the writers created a lot of community ill will toward the spokesman. It was unfair to the writers and editors, but kind of fair to the larger ownership structure because like, yeah, why should we trust this mag- this newspaper that's owned 
by the family that's embroiled in this scandal, right? That's the that's the central tension that we that we want to avoid where it's like, yeah, we're getting most of our funding from listener. And then you can just hate me cuz you hate me and then but and, but since Val's also an owner, when you're correct to hate me, Val will be able to say like, yeah, no, we're going to do the the Luke Baumgarten exposé or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or the or the Brennan Pointer expose actually he's uh, over there on the ones and twos <laughs> quietly controlling everything from his uh, producer station so that's the idea and it's like a little utopian but like why not like let's try it here I think that's one of the things that gives me hope is that Spokane has a history of doing weird stuff and punching above its weight and supporting things a, a similar city our size wouldn't support like there we just have like a really strong community here and the inlander the stuff that we already have is evidence of that the, the work i've done with terrain stuff like feast world kitchen like these these startup nonprofits and and other organizations that in other contexts would not be as successful as they are but are just community changing from the drop because of the way spokane supports meaningful stuff like that we're, we're hoping to tap into that i think i gotta say that um i feel really lucky to be here at range and part of the co-op and here in spokane I'm excited for this to be my new home city and the place where I stay for the next 30 years or whatever. Hopefully if I can buy a house. I just, I slid her paycheck to her after she said that. Just <laughs> um, so part of this whole community journalism thing we're trying to do, and this is something that Val brought to us that I'm, I'm really glad she did is we're doing these community, these news needs surveys. And we're actually going to send, send an out a version of this to all y'all but we sort of did a test run on the local Spokane subreddit, which I'm kind of one of the things that made me think range was possible was when I discovered the Spokane subreddit and how cool, mostly untoxic self-policing and like thoughtful this community is and surprisingly progressive, but also like not exclusively that like it, there is like really good thoughtful conversation from across the sort of ideological spectrum and there's like 40,000 people on the sub. And and for my money, it doesn't feel like they're like the traditional news, white collar news consumer, professional living on the South Hill. It's like a, there's a there's a good mix of people there, too. It's people who talk pretty openly about how contingent their jobs are and how tough their lives are. Mm-hmm. And yet they're still trying to have understand the community and like move in it and act in it. So anyways, it's awesome. And if you're on Reddit and you don't know about the Spokane sub, you should definitely jump into it. But we sort of did a, and literally just last night, we posted the survey to the sub and we got like 28 responses with a bunch of good questions. So we might not have time, but like in one of the questions we asked was like, what stories in the last six months needed more focus in Spokane County, homelessness, crime rates, city halls, a mess, incompetence. There was a epithet used about our prosecutor, but we'll just say, why did we let our prosecutor off the hook? Because the news slowed down talking about Larry Haskell and the, and the drama with uh, his wife, Leslie. And also as we reported, like the disparities that have continued in our criminal legal system under his regime as prosecutor. There were some really, really good questions. I still don't think we're covering the housing crisis enough. One person said, yeah, we asked what needed more focus and what got too much attention. This person said more focus, elections, city council happenings, issues with the unhoused population, housing crisis, less focus, quote unquote, Spokane style pizza, which I think we, (laughs) (laughs) oh, that was so embarrassing, man. Not embarrassing that somebody made a jokey YouTube video about a clearly fake pizza, but embarrassing that Spokane still gets so butthurt that like that dude got death threats. Apparently (laughs) it's like, come on, y'all need more. 
housing rent increases, less homeless bashing. That's interesting. Well, happy second anniversary range. Is there anything else we wanted to cover before we dip? Um, we had one last voicemail. What is up, guys? Longtime listener, first time caller, and I just got to say congratulations to your two-year anniversary at Range. Uh, it's been a wild ride. You get, I mean, you started this in COVID, and it's amazing to see how far Range has come as a news organization here in Spokane. It's been so cool to see. Uh, so congratulations, Luke. Welcome, Valerie. I do have one question for you. I have a company in Spokane called Spokast. I help you guys record your podcast sometimes. And uh, my question is, a question that I like to ask on my podcast, Spokast, is why Spokane? It's going to come from very two different perspectives, obviously, because we have Luke, who's been in Spokane, I feel like pretty much his whole, whole life. God, we just keep saying uh, and this. And then Valerie, who's <laughs> new to Spokane. So uh, I'd love to know why Spokane from both of you and from your different experiences and perspectives of what makes Spokane such a unique city. Thank you, Brendan, for only putting two self-serving uh, messages <laughs> in there and not like a third doing the, the rule of threes. But it's a good question. So, so yeah, why, why for, for you, Val, why Spokane? So, I mean, there was kind of, you know, when me and my husband were, you know, looking for places to live outside of California, uh, not necessarily outside of California, but places where we could feasibly find a journalism job and afford a home, <laughs> which that, that's a two separate circles, not, not a Venn diagram, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it was a lot of, we had visited Seattle and then thought, you know, wow, the Pacific Northwest is very pretty. This is a, this is a cool area. And then my best friend actually moved to North Idaho and, you know, we went and visited them over Thanksgiving and that was, it was a lot of things that um, emerged in perfect timing, you know, when this job came up and when we visited here, you thought, wow, this is beautiful. This is a beautiful place. This is a beautiful town. It's green, which is funny that you guys don't think it's green. <laughs> you know, my first impression was that this is a pretty town and it's, it's got so much of you know, it's history kind of laid bare. Like um, Luke first told me that the, you know, the reason why there's all these brick buildings was because they were never torn down because mm. Spokane was a boom and bust town. Like, and I kind of thought that's really cool that, you know, all this history is still here. And then like driving down the street, you know, there's music shops still, there's like an organ repair shop and, you know, seeing like, there's still like lots of small businesses and there's lots of um, people still, you know, caring about their community that really drew me to Spokane. And then seeing what you're doing here, Luke, and um, just the kind of different things that you, the, one of the first things you told me is that Spokane is a really good place to try things and see, and then the community kind of shows up. <laughs> it's kind of like the impression you gave me. You're stealing my answer now, but yeah, continue. Oh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that that drew me there. And um, you, you were a very good salesman for Spokane also when I first met you. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, for me, as a, somebody who grew up here, the, I've had sort of a complicated relationship with Spokane and definitely wanted to leave. And there was a time in my life when like, especially when I was still at the Inlander and thinking about my career ambitions as a writer, I was like, I got to leave because like there's only so far you can go in a town like Spokane. 
and didn't end up doing that. And also around the time that I was thinking about like what shape my life would take and my career would take, we started doing terrain and, and other stuff and sort of started shifting from, or not shifting, but in, in addition to the sort of porting I was doing about Spokane, started actually, you know, working in the community and trying to do stuff. And yeah, that's where I started to realize after a couple of years of doing terrain that like there were certainly like career opportunities in, you know, media places like New York or LA or San Francisco or Chicago. But there was something really, really special about my hometown that folks who were doing similar organizing work or community building work in Seattle. So people that don't do that work would come to come to something like terrain and be like, this is cool enough to be a Seattle thing. And that on the, at the first blush, like that made us feel really proud. Like, oh, we're doing something cool enough that people think it's like too cool for Spokane or something. But then like talking with people who actually did this work in Seattle or places like that, Portland, who would come over and experience terrain would say like, this actually couldn't happen in mm. Seattle. Seattle's too built up or there's, yeah. too, you know, something that was started off as a really, really grassroots thing. It's so much harder to sort of using the roots metaphor and probably torturing it. There's already so many roots. Mm -hmm. It's hard for new roots to take, to get purchased in, in markets like that for whatever reason, or for like, you know, just a fluke of literal history, human history. And when, when I was born, I found myself as a like late twenties person wanting to really make an impact in my community at a time when my hometown really wanted to be more than it had ever been or just different than it had been and started developing almost like a like a, a citywide or culture-wide or community-wide ambition that at least didn't feel like it was there when I was growing up. I feel really fortunate that things worked out the way they did because it's led to all of this in a way that feels very like symbiotic and mutually supportive. And it's, it's super cool. And I think that's more or less the answer I gave when you asked that question of me in the very first episode of Spokast, like five years ago. All right. Well, this was awesome. We went a little long as always. So it's a, it's a good, it's a, we, you know, you've successfully done an episode of range when you're 15 or 20 minutes longer than you want to be. <laughs> so should we call it? Yeah. Let's uh, call it. Um, wait, I have one last question. Oh, will you ever let me host again? You know, I think we can tighten some things up. Let's 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 have a conversation. No, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. All right. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks for uh, this <laughs> sitting through this weird celebration of our second year of existence. And uh, have a great week. Bye. Bye. prepared for this <laughs> i just i need we the, have the to, record no, this, to show this, just because i got recorded doesn't mean that it's going to end up on the final episode is <laughs> the first thing anybody hears about you <laughs> for the record <laughs> i prepared and produced this episode very thoroughly oh you mean that? no it's yeah it's just a, <laughs> it's a recurring trope